1: What is going on, guys? I am pumped right now. Today is the rebranding of the podcast from what you know is the super original name of the Real Estate Investing Podcast with Dante Belmonte. You type that in, about a thousand podcasts pop up. Today is the first day that we brand under the Make Money, Make Sense in Real Estate with Dante Belmonte Podcast. Basically, what we did was uh, we re the podcast to this because of our syndication firm that just came about as Victory Capital Group. So today, you're going to hear, and from here on forward, you're always going to hear the podcast referred to as Make Money, Make Sense in Real Estate with Dante Belmonte. You're going to see the words Victory Capital Group come up a lot. That is our new investment firm that my partner and I have created as of last month. So if you guys are looking to get some more info on that, you can visit our website, VictoryCapGroup.com to learn more. Today's episode, we have Bruce Peterson, the apartment guy, -guy apt-guy.com on the show. Best-selling author. He also has a load of syndications under his portfolio, and we're going to sit down and touch on all of that. I hope you guys really enjoy the show. If you can, please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and write us a review. It really does help, especially with the rebranding. Hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today's guest, we've got Bruce Peterson with us, author, syndicator, investor. Uh, I've personally been super, super excited to get Bruce on the show. Uh, We had a show date scheduled. It got postponed. I was super bummed out because I I love what Bruce is putting out there. He's basically the no BS real estate syndicator to me. Um, He's not selling you anything. He's educating you. And if you want to go with him, he'll take you with him. He's never going to force you on his path. Today we're talking about my favorite thing, real estate investing at a syndication standpoint. So we're going to jump into what a syndication is. We're going to pick Bruce's brain and figure out what's going on. So Bruce, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself?
0: All right. Yeah. Bruce Peterson. I'm the apartment guy, right? APT dash guy. I'm a syndicator, large apartment complexes throughout central Texas. Been doing it for, what, eight, nine years now. Uh, enjoy it, love everything about it. Very vertically integrated. Uh, have a, two management companies, one in Austin and one in Nashville. The one in Nashville, we do some short-term rentals, a lot of true commercial, warehouse, office, retail, things like that. Um, try to establish ourselves in the multifamily space out there as well. Uh, have our own construction company. Been doing it, like I said, for a while. We've syndicated over 1,100 units. Uh, done six different deals, uh, have coached people on this for years. Um, so yeah, I'm on here, I guess, because I wrote the book and that kind of popped up, but it's just a no-nonsense look at what exactly syndication is all about. The step-by-step guide to teach you everything you need to know, but also trying to make sure you understand that this is not rainbows and lollipops like a lot of people think. This shit's hard. There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of liability. There's a lot of stress. But for the right person, it can be a very, very good approach to building wealth
1: for you and your family and real estate. That's great. So awesome. We're definitely going to talk about that. But let's talk about how you got started in real estate and syndications. Where where did this idea come from? Where did you get educated about it? And, and what made you want to take the jump and get started?
0: Well, you know, to back up a little bit, I'm a, I'm a college dropout, you know, fell into retail because of that and did that for almost 20 years. And it You know, I I said to myself, I I told myself a lie that I think a lot of people in retail tell themselves, I'm a people person, so I love retail. Dude, retail sucked. I I worked (laughs) with good managers, good bosses, good companies, but still at the end of the day, oh my God, there's nothing wrong with working in retail. It was just eating me alive. You know, the last year, you know, I was a big box store manager. um, And for the last year, I worked about 100 to 110 hour weeks consistently. Ugh. And I just hit a wall, had to had to get out of that. I was 42, 43 years old, uh, kind of quasi-retired. I haven't had enough money to live on, but I was getting bored. So I started nosing around, trying to figure out who could teach me how to invest in real estate, because I keep hearing this a big deal.
1: Real quick, you said you were 40, 42, you said, roughly? Yep. So that just goes to show you don't have to start when you're super young. You can get started anytime in this.
0: Exactly. Yeah, so my early 40s. It was time for me to pivot and figure something else out. Working those many hours, that many hours in retail, I didn't have a wife, didn't have kids, didn't have a dog. I, I didn't have anything. I'm five foot eight, 240 pounds back then. I was a fat son of a bitch. You know, I'll just be <laughs> honest, man. Um, I was depressed. Didn't realize it until after I got myself out of that situation. But again, so now I'm trying to figure out. Well, what's the deal with this real estate investing? None of my friends knew. Um, I knew real estate agents. None of them could. Talk to me about it at all. So I found a mentor finally by just doing a Google search, and she taught me the ropes. She said, "Don't go into multi, uh, don't go into single family, because you don't need to. Go into multifamily because you have the wherewithal financially, you have the mindset for it, and you have the time. But not only that, I'm going to show you how to syndicate your first deal. Like, oh, I don't know anything about this, but I trust you. So I just followed her lead and jumped in with both feet. Learned everything she would teach me um she actually represented me she was a a buyer's broker which is exceptionally rare in this industry but so i just followed her she helped me get my first three properties um it's the best thing i've ever done you know again coming from a background of a college dropout two parents that were high school dropouts a retail guy you know i'm i'm very inquisitive I have a thirst for knowledge. I'm always trying to learn and better myself. It's just that the formal education route didn't work for me. So, you know, this anybody can do this, but again, you just got to understand that it's like
1: any business you start, it's hard and it's risky, but to me it's worth it. Awesome. Okay. Now, A lot of guys on this show they're listening because they want to get started in syndicating. It seems to be something that's becoming more popular. It's getting more attention because people are being sold on "Oh, It's easy. You know, just get some people together we all raise some money, go buy a property. It's not as easy as it sounds. There's a lot more to it. It's a lot more complicated and there's, there's a lot more risk to it at at points as well. Talking to those individuals who are those little guys looking to get started. Let's just knock out some of the points, raising the capital, finding the deals, Signing on the, you know, having the balance sheet. Let, let's break those down. And, and Bruce, you start wherever you want.
0: All right. So, finding the money, you know, people ask me all the time, well, I, I got to find the deal before I find the money because then I don't have anything to sell the people that I find. No, that's completely backwards. Don't go find a deal because you're excited and you're a little intimidated by raising money. Raise the money first. If you get okay. a deal and you don't have the money raised, well, you can't do anything with the deal. Right. And you're going to have a lot of deals fall out and you're going to burn your name in the industry. Because it's a very small industry. and Right.
1: They're going to say this guy can't close.
0: Exactly. So you're going to screw yourself from the beginning. So you got to go out and find the money first, right? Go to meetups, go to real estate events, go to seminars and expos and all that thing. You know, just get out there and network with people. You have to raise the money. So my rule of thumb is, let's say your first deal, you're going to need to raise, you know, $500,000. Mm-hmm. You better raise $1.5 million. And people are thinking, oh, my God, I'm just getting started. You're already telling me i got to raise 100, $1.5 million? Yeah, I am. Because the attrition rate is going to be very high, especially on your first deal. They're going to know, like, and trust you maybe. But by the time you have the initial conversation, you build a relationship with these people. And then you present them with a deal maybe three to six to nine months down the line. Many of them have changed their mind. They don't want to invest in real estate. Some have already uh, found another deal to invest in getting to know you over the, the the months. Maybe they just decide, dude, I don't like you after all.
1: So right. They don't trust you because you're selling yourself, not the deal.
0: Exactly. So there's all kinds of reasons people won't come through at the end with the amount of money they initially told you about. So you better triple raise. I used to say double or triple. I'm leaning more toward triple. You're trying to set yourself up for success because if you go out there to raise money for a deal that you find, and then at the last minute you figure, Oh my God, you know, eight of the 10 people fell out. Well, you can't go raise any more money likely because you have to have a pre-existing relationship with these people. If you meet somebody today at a meetup and send them your deal tomorrow, that's against the law. You right. Depending to, on how you, you file the SEC. Substantive relationship with them. Right. You can't just have met them. You have to know them. If you file a 506B, right. And that's getting a little deep for a lot of people on the podcast, probably, but that, you know, I go into it in the book. Uh, a good syndication attorney can explain all that for you. Um, so yeah, you gotta raise the money first and then go find the deal. So that that's the most fundamental piece.
1: Let's let's touch on that raising money aspect because there's two things that people have issues with, no matter if they're doing small multifamily commercial or large buildings. It's either I can't find the money or I can't find the deal. Let's let's break down that I can't find the money. How do you find the money? How did you find the money? How did you get started? Well, now it's you know this self-sustaining engine. Um, because yep. I've done it for a
0: while, um, won some awards doing it, but at the beginning. You just got to find people, connect with them. First thing I would say, probably don't reach out to friends and family. Do it if you want, but most friends and family are going to tune you out. They're going to giggle at you. They're going to not trust you. You go, oh yeah, this is the next harebrained idea you've got or whatever. (laughs) They're not open to what you're trying to do. You need to go to places, these meetups and RIAs locally where people already have the mindset that real estate is the way and this is what they wanna do. So don't try to convert people that maybe not be convertible. Um, I started a meetup at the very beginning back in 2011, and it started out with me and one other guy. We met at Starbucks every other week, and that grew over about a three to five year period. It grew to about 300 people. So my first deal though, it took about nine months from the day that I started the meetup until I got a deal under contract. But that was more than enough time to get to know a lot of people very intimately. We would boat and barbecue and drink together. And we got to know each other very well. So even though I didn't have any, I didn't have a track record. I had no experience. They knew first of all that I was being educated. I was working with a coach and I was willing to listen to that coach and, um, that they liked and trusted me. So, you know, it worked out for me by starting that meetup. That was, that was my big key right there.
1: Going, going to the meetup. So, I host the meetup as well. I actually just had our first meetup in person since COVID last night. Uh, pretty good turnout. 22 people I'd say at our new office or first time location. What are, so two things with the meetups. One, where, where are you advertising them? And how are you getting people through the door that want to ha- take a more passive approach? And what are those topics that you're talking about at each meetup? How do you structure those for someone that's looking to start a meetup or even pointers for myself? How can I get more passive investors in those seats? So I'll just give you my real story. I didn't go into it with some big grand scheme. I didn't know what the
0: hell I was doing. I just thought, (laughs) shit, let me, me and this friend of mine, VJ, I said, hey, let's just get together and talk about what we're learning over the weeks because we're both trying to learn real estate investing. Great. Mm -hmm. So I call it a meetup because it it had the structure of a meetup, but it wasn't on the platform. But then every time we would go to an expo or a RIA or somebody else's meetup, we would meet other people say, hey, we meet every other week uh, at Starbucks you want to join, we just sit around and talk real estate. I didn't have a format. I didn't have an idea. I just liked learning about real estate, talking to other people that were learning about real estate. And what I found is probably 70 to 80% of the people I was encountering at all these other meetings and meetups, they only wanted to find somebody like me to invest their money with because they didn't want Mm. any part of trying to run this thing. They had a good job that they liked, they may have been retired, they didn't want to give that up. They were maybe a stay at home parent. They didn't want to give that up. They were just looking for somebody like me to invest in. So we've started uh, since a second meetup. I've turned the first meetup over to one of the guys that was one of my first investors, uh, gave him the mailing list, let him take over, and I started the second one. This one, I had an idea. I, okay, I wanted to be different. So, what I've just like the book, I'm teaching everybody how to do a syndication for the price of a book. That's it. And so at this meetup the, the idea was I had to do something different than everybody else. Everybody in their damn brother has a meetup now. Yep. What yep. can I do different? We educate at this meetup. I awesome. control the meetup almost always. Most of them it's an open forum, you'll have lots of guest speakers and we do do that, but you know, out of the 12 month year, about 8 of those, 8 or 9 of those months I am leading the thing because I have a specific class I'm going to teach that day on one next step in this process. Yep, that's but even great. Even though it's geared towards syndicators to be, there are still a lot of people that will go in there and go, oh, holy shit, I don't want any part of this, dude. This is hard. I don't that's have a time. Lot. Yeah. A lot of them turn into investors because, again, they've gotten to know me personally. They've gotten to trust me, like me, and have confidence in me. So anything you can do to become kind of a an authority, a, an authoritative voice. Yep. Even yep. if you don't teach like I do, because you don't have the chops, totally fine. You have a credibility um, piece involved in starting your own meetup. Even if you don't know a lot, you're still the guy. You're still the hub, and everybody's going to flock towards you and talk yep. to you. Hey, can you tell me how to get in touch with that guy that talked the other day? you are the center of their universe at this point. So it, exactly. it's actually credibility builder.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that's great. And that's kind of why I started the meetup by myself. There's I'm in a, in a smaller area, not obviously as big as the market you're in, but there's about three to four other meetups. And something that I get and I hear all the time as far as feedback, and I also feel the same way is, that's great, I didn't come here to just kind of talk to a bunch of people and just kind of socialize, I want to learn. So what I figured is, Let, let's meet that need, let's fill that gap. People want to get educated. They can meet up and talk with each other and share coffee all the time, but they want to get educated and they want to learn. And that's what they're here for. They're taking time out of their day. They're taking time away from their family, taking time off from work possibly, or even relaxing to learn. So what I'll do is I'll bring in a CPA, a commercial loan officer, an attorney, and I'll just have them talk and let these people pick their brains and give presentations. And I do have that authoritative figure in the room. And in general, a lot of people are are coming to me asking me questions and Now half the rooms filled with my clients, you know, because I'm a licensed agent, so I'm representing them on deals and whatnot, and hoping to turn a lot of those guys into passive investors. I've had a few come, and they contacted me and said, "Hey, you know, I've been going to meetups for about a year and a year and a half now. You probably don't notice me because I sit in the back every once in a while, but I'm choosing you to invest my money with." And so it's becoming to that figure where you're capturing those investors. So I think that's great. Um, Bruce, what other avenues would you say you take for raising capital? Obviously it's like recycling at this point. You've probably have investors reinvest you with referrals, but on that beginning stretch, was it really just the meetups? It was really just the meetups
0: and just trying to be involved in all the other avenues that I could, not just my own meetup, but try to be involved everywhere I could. I'm the guy that I jump in with both feet and I learn everything about everything I can about the thing I'm trying to figure out. I just, obsess about something. If I figure this is real, this is the thing. So I just jump in with both feet. There's a local group here that uh, I would, I was starting to go to and listen to what they had to say, listen to the speakers they'd have come up. I would always get there before everybody. I would always stay after everybody left and just hang out with the organizers and just get to know them. And uh, it was actually a company. And it got to where I became like the unofficial mascot. People would walk up to me at the meetup or at the meetings and say, Hey, uh, you work here. How about like, I don't work here. Oh, no. <laughs> I just see you all the time. I assumed you work here. So they just got comfortable with me because I was always involved. I was always trying to help other people. I was always talking and trying to, uh, you know, explain my journey as I went. So that's what most of it was, is just being hyper involved, uh, going to any and everything. I'm the guy in the room at a party. I'll be talking to somebody and there'll be somebody behind me. And all of a sudden I'll hear my name say, Bruce, you want to do it? Yep, absolutely. And then I'll have to turn to them and say, okay, well, now what are we doing? Right. I'll always jump and say yes. Unless yes. it's, you know, endanger my life or something. I'm always saying yes. Always, always, always.
1: Yeah, and that's in turn how you turn into that investor magnet. Yeah. Um, another point that I just want to touch on real quick that I think is important. There was a, a young lady at the meetup last night, and she asked the question. It wasn't even something we were talking about. I was giving a presentation on how to increase NOI for property. Um, she said, well, how do you raise private money and, and, and hard money? And I just kind of laughed because I hear that question a lot. And I just said, you need to tell everyone and anyone what you're doing. I'm a real estate investor. I'm looking to invest. You need to, when people think of real estate or investing, they also need to think of you in their head and they have to say, Oh, well, Oh yeah. I'm thinking about doing real estate investing, Bruce Pearson. Why did I just think of that? You know, it it just, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, and when people ask too, when you're getting started, you know, okay, how many deals have you done? And if you haven't before, Oh, I personally haven't done any, but I've got this phenomenal team and start piggybacking off your team. My sec attorneys, you know, They've syndicated over 10,000 units. You know, my, my real estate attorney, how many transactions he's done, my commercial lender, uh, start gloating about the property manager and that will give someone much more incentive and much more comfort to say, okay, there's some experience and uh, some good track record behind here. Um, just something I wanted to touch on with the private money, the hard money that people always talk about.
0: Well, uh, and I think a lot of it too, yeah, start throwing out the people that you're working with. But the biggest person I think for a credibility piece Is, you know, and trust me, I'm not asking to be anybody's coach or mentor, but find a coach or mentor that has done it and hopefully is doing it and been successful at it because they're going to shorten your timeline to success. They're going to, you know, keep you from making a lot of the screwed up mistakes that they did. But now you can say, hey, yes, this is my first deal. I haven't done one yet, but this is the mentor, the coach that I'm working with. This is their track record. This is the success they've had. So, you know, if you can get across to them that I'm working with very smart, intelligent, successful people, and I am going to listen to these people, that'll go a long way too.
1: Right. And didn't you exercise that yourself right off the beginning, like you said?
0: Of course. Yeah. I found somebody and I just put my life in their hands financially. Remember the day before I was going to close on the first deal that I did as a syndication, um, I called her. I said, Hey, um," she goes, what's wrong? I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm taking over tomorrow <laughs> on a multi million dollar asset. She starts laughing like that, and yeah, we, yeah. Oh, and she goes, Dude, it's okay. I'm like, what do you mean it's okay? I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> she goes, but I do. And you have always listened to me. You're there, you go, you're catching on, you're grasping everything. Just continue to do what you're doing, keep listening to me, taking my advice, and, and it's going to be fine. And I hung up try not to hyperventilate, I'm very confident, but when it's something that new, that big, with four or $500,000 of other people's money in my back pocket that I have to guard with my life, yep. it's a little nerve wracking, so, but it, it worked out, I listened to her and it all, it all worked out well.
1: That's great, no, I, I like that a lot. So, something that comes up in question a lot is the balance sheet or the high net worth investor that's signing on the loan for you on that first deal. How did that look for you? Were you in a, a liquid or were you in a, a a higher position where you could sign on the bank balance sheet for the loan or did you get a loan guarantor for that? Yeah. So I'll just be flat out honest with you, right?
0: You kind of need money and, and credit to get started. All these programs say, nobody, no credit. You'll... Yeah, It can happen. <laughs> the goo- the gurus, you know, right? Yeah. That shit just doesn't work. Again, it can, but it's super difficult. So- um, when I started out, I had $400,000. So that was my net worth, maybe five, somewhere in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first loan was $1,137,500. I remember it exactly.
1: Yeah, that's not,
0: not what my net worth was, right? And for your first deal, you need to have net worth equal to or greater than the loan. And you, I needed to have roughly 30% of that loan in post-closing liquid funds. I didn't have either of those, right? So, well, no, I didn't have the post-liquid funds, but I didn't have the uh, net worth. So um, I just, these people that I met at the the meetup, you know, they got to know me for for almost a nine month period. Two of these people still had full-time six figure jobs and they agreed to sign for me on my first uh, property. It was a full recourse loan. I had no experience. I had no job, but they felt confident in my ability and my honesty and my transparency uh, to make this work, and they actually told me, "Look, we know you don't know what you're doing, but you're doing it the right way. Yep. We trust you. We'll figure this out." So they were willing to put their name on the. It's a relationship thing, right? Everybody talks about that, but it's true. If people don't like you, hey, ain't nobody in the world gonna sign on your loan. Well, but I'll yep. give them five percent of the deal. Who gives a shit? If I don't like you and I don't trust you, that five percent is not worth. The risk I'm taking,
1: you could take me down financially. Yep. No, you're right. And with those guarantors you had signed, did you give them a fee? Did you give them equity in the deal? What what how did you structure it? And we'll yeah, get into
0: them, uh, structure. Between the two of them, I gave them three points on the deal. So they got three percent equity on top of the personally contributed capital. So they got a little sweetener, a little kicker. Uh right. so Monthly cash flow, quarterly cash flow, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. When we sold, that turned into a really, really big sweetener for them on the back end.
1: Okay. And so let's talk about structure with your investors and how you, you sh- structure your split. Do you charge an acquisition fee upfront for these properties? And if so, how much?
0: I charge no acquisition disposition, which is sale. I don't charge disposition fees. I don't charge refinance fees, but I also don't give a, a preferred return. Okay, so that's why?
1: Right, so you're able to trade off all those fees without doing a preferred return and just get a split immediately from day one cash flow? Exactly, and when I talk to people, everybody expects a
0: preferred return, but when I explain to them why I don't, they all understand and every I've never had one person push back because what I tell them that, look, I can charge you a 2% acquisition fee and that's kind of typical, what? Yeah, pretty standard in the market. Twenty million dollar assets. The day I close, I get an acquisition fee of four hundred thousand dollars. In that scenario, I haven't done anything. I haven't produced for you nothing, and I already made four hundred thousand dollars. So let's say I hold it for six months. I try as best I can to make it successful, but it goes to shit, and we lose the property. (laughs) Doesn't matter to me. I got my four hundred grand. Right. I'll, peace out. Right. I, I'm in the Bahamas somewhere sipping my ties on your phone. On half a million. I do <laughs> not like that thought process at all. But I have to be compensated for this. So since I'm not going to get these big fees, I, I got to preserve my share of cash flow. So that's why I won't give a preferred return. And again, when I explain it to people, when I'm transparent with people, Yep. All understood because I live on cash flow. I don't want these huge chunks of money. First of all, not only have I not performed for it yet, but secondly, for taxes, oh my God, that's a hellacious tax hit and I don't want to deal with that either.
1: Right. So you're saying from a cash flow perspective, you able to use the tax benefits to shelter some of that cash flow versus you can't really shelter that acquisition fee, correct?
0: Right, because a one-time acquisition fee, that's ordinary income, and you're going to be taxed anywhere from twenty to forty percent on that. When I roll it into a distribution instead, then you know, we don't pay taxes usually for about the first three to five years of ownership because there's so much depreciation that cost segregation up front in my pocket, but I'm not having to pay taxes on it.
1: Okay. So so that's interesting, and I don't hear that a lot, and I want to make a big deal about that. So you're saying. You're not taking an acquisition fee up front to pay ordinary income on. Therefore, you can use it as stronger cash flow too. And I'm sure because you're not tacking on a $400,000 or, or 2% acquisition fee up front, the cash flow is probably a little bit stronger on the property because now you're not having to come up with that $400,000 up front as part of your down payment or your uh, equity you needed in the deal. Um, I really exactly. like that approach. So,
0: yeah, if I'm going to charge an acquisition fee, I got to raise that from these people. So yeah, there's more money in the deal now. So I'm raising money from them to put straight directly into my pocket. So it does lower your returns Um, on a $20 million deal. It's not making a huge difference, but it is absolutely making a difference. And the way I structure my promote. So let's talk more about the the preferred. A preferred return. Let's say I have a six pref, right? A 6% preferred return. Mm -hmm. The investor gets all 6% before I get anything. If I deliver an 8% return, I get my promote or my split on that extra 2% only. The way I do it, I get my promote or split, that 80 20 split or that 70 30 split on the whole 8%. And that, again, I pay my bills with cash flow. So that's why I wanted it that way. But also, I structure it as not an override, I structure it as additional equity. Now, when I say an override, let's say I'm doing a distribution for this mm-hmm. quarter of $100,000 and I have an override of 20%. What that means is before I send out the $100,000, I'm going to take 20% off the top for my override. Cause I'm, I got to get compensated for doing this yep. remaining 80%. Everybody gets their pro rata share of that 80%, that $80,000. Right? Mm-hmm. So the way I do it, it's actual equity. So the day that we close the deal, I assume 20% of the equity. That's important for two reasons. Well, one main reason. It has to do, this is going to get way, way, way up here probably for most people and that's fine. Right. But we'll touch on it. Yeah. It it has to do with depreciation. (laughs) If I have an override, I only get my pro rata share of the depreciation based on how much money I contributed. If I take it as equity instead, you know, let's say I contribute 5% of the deal and I have a 20% promote or split. If you combine those two, that's 25%. So I will assume 25% of the deal the day we close. So now I get 25% of that depreciation expense, where if I only did it as an override, I only get the 5% that I personally contributed. So there's a huge benefit to the syndicator. It doesn't make any bottom line difference to the uh, investor for the most part. Right. So it's just the way I structure it from a taxation and a bookkeeping uh, standpoint. But also, if I take it as equity on the front end, that is considered compensation if I don't pay for it. So if I don't pay for it, just like an acquisition fee, I have to declare all of that booked income the day that I book it. However, if I will say I will buy 20% for $1,000, I have paid something for it. I have established a cost basis. So now there's not a big chunk of taxation on the front end. So there's lots of ways to structure this. Your syndication attorney will teach you how to do all that if they're good. So again, this is a lot of information. It's way over most people's heads, but that's okay. Uh, Just know that stuff's out there. There's different ways to skin a cat and your attorney will walk you through it.
1: Yeah, that's great. And, And taking those tax benefits face forward to secure as much income. Now, let's say you do have a six or eight percent preferred return on the property, and you don't have, uh, well, let's say you don't have a preferred return, but you're getting eight percent on the property, and that's what you projected. Anything over that, let's say 10 percent, are you putting that buffer of two percent away as for reserves, or how does that look, or do you have the reserves already calculated? in what that 8% return is going to be. We have the sense. reserves
0: calculated. So <clears throat> okay. my reserves will always be one to two months of expenses, including debt service. That's always my reserves. I don't ever come below that. And then let's say two or three years into ownership, I decide, hey, we want to put in a new playscape. It's going to cost 50000 And so, yes, I will withhold some of that distribution for you know the next four to eight quarters, whatever it takes to save up that money to go out there and pay for that, uh, for that place game. So that's how I handle that. But most of that, uh, all those big rehab projects are going to be handled in the cash raise up. front.
1: Okay. And when you're talking to these investors and you're showing them that there's no preferred return because it's not like they get their return and then you get the split therefore after it's just a straight, like you said, 80, 20 or 70, 30 split. How are you, explaining them or, or telling them what the projected returns are going to be on this project. If there's no preferred split or preferred well, returns, well, it's, it's a lot easier for me to figure actually, because the preferred, is, yeah. i got
0: to show them, okay, you're going to get 6% projected. Remember that's important yep. too. No guarantee yep. it's a projected return 6%. And then you got to take the remaining 2% and split that up 80, 20, and then you got to add it to their 6%. So then you got to do all the math and that's fine. Cause I've got it built into spreadsheets, yep. but mine is easier. If we get an 8% return, you get 80% of it. I get 20% of it. I Very show good. them the property return. Then I show my promote or my cut. Yep. remaining that they get their percentage of. And then I show them what the passive or the limited partner return percentage is projected to be.
1: Awesome. So real simple to 8% return, you're going to get the 20%, they get the 80% and you just do the math to tell them what that 80% of the 8% is. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. Okay. So if it's an
0: 8% return, they get 80%. They're gonna effectively have a six point four percent return. Because they're right. only going to exactly. 20% of it, it's like Shark Tank, right? I'm yep. selling <laughs> 80% of my company, or I'm selling 70% of my company. And a lot of people don't think about it that way. They just say, You're putting that much money in your pocket. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm running the deal, but mm-hmm. again, I'm agreeing to sell a portion of my company and I will reserve a portion of my company for myself.
1: That's great. I uh I really like and I appreciate your partnership structure that you take after, like I said, waiving those acquisition, dispo, refinance fees and your preferred return and just making it pretty easy. It's It's got to be fairly easy to explain that to investors too. They don't have to get familiar with all these terms of what's going on in the deal. So that's good. Uh-huh anything else you want to touch on on it on deal structure before we move well, on to the next the, the last piece of that again mm-hmm. i am
0: i'm going to kill myself to keep this as simple as possible for the investors because <laughs> again the more difficult it is for them to understand the less likely they are to invest so i don't do waterfalls of any kind period right so when we sell whatever the net net profit is they're going to get their 80% share of that or 70% share of that there's no If, you know, we have a 10% return on sale, we split 80-20. If we have a 15% on sale, well, then that extra 5%, I'm now going to get 70, you get 30, you get 70. Oh, if I have a 50% return, now we're going to split it 50-50. I got to keep track of all those tiers. I don't do that. It's just, I own 80%, you own 80%, and that's the way it'll be split up at the end. So I tell you exactly how distributions will be paid from uh, operations, from sale, from uh, refinance i explained it all in my documents i explained it all in a webinar that we do before we get into the deal so everybody understands completely what is to be expected and i keep it super simple
1: wonderful let's touch on refinance real quick before we go to the next section so refinance if it's an 80 20 split all the equity you're pulling out is that just a simple 80 20 split from yourself to the investors it is the way i structure it
0: yes now there's different ways you can structure it Um, You can structure it. This gets into return on return of and all that stuff. Again, it gets complicated, but the way I structure it, yes. I've done it both ways, but for the most part, when I do a refi, then if we get a million dollars and I have a 20% cut or promote, then I'll take 200,000 and the the partners will split up the 800,000 of which I am an investor as well. If I invest my own money. So I'll, I promote my my premium, and,
1: and then, but then your I'm shares of that eighty
0: pro a share of whatever that remaining eighty percent is, mm-hmm. and not all um, sponsors or syndicators will put money into their own deals, and that's totally mm-hmm. legit. There are legitimate reasons they may not do that, but I put money into all of my own deals.
1: Okay, and when you're advertising these deals, are you advertising a cash on cash return percentage or an IRR? Well, for
0: the most part, cash on cash, because I'm not dealing with family offices and insurance companies and endowments. You know, my guys, they're sophisticated, but they're not crazy
1: sophisticated. And IRR is hard to understand.
0: Oh, it's complicated as shit. You know, a lot of people No, my, I can read you the definition and people go, well, what did that mean? (laughs) What? Right. And then you
1: look at the formula on spreadsheet and you're like,
0: (laughs) I love the Excel formula. I don't calculate it myself. Because it's complicated. It's a very nebulous concept. So um, I'll show the IRR, but I really talk about the cash on cash. And if people want to talk about the IRR, I have it in the documents that they see. They're going to see a really nice color um, offering memorandum. I'll break down the equity multiple, the average annualized return, the cash on cash return annually and average over the whole period and I'll show them the IRR. So that way, whatever they use to assess a deal, they've got it there for them. But most everybody only focuses on cash on cash. And I'm aware of that. So I try to cater my offerings to the way they want to
1: see it. And repeat those again. You said you're showing IRR, equity multiple, cash on cash. What else? And the average annualized return. So if I double their
0: money by the time we sell between cash flow and sale distributions, That double, if we held it for five years, so then that's an average annualized return of 20%. IRR would be much lower than that because the IRR factors in the time value of money and compounding, right? Yep. So it'll look lower, but they will be the same number or the same end result.
1: Yep. And and we can make a whole series about calculating these numbers because they get so in-depth, but- I, uh, you're definitely, I can tell you're a spreadsheet nerd. Like Macy, well, I,
0: you really I like this <laughs> class, uh, on the fifth in Houston. And we're going to go over all that. I want to cover all the four main, uh, returns in depth, uh, because yeah, it, it does need a lot of attention itself. Cause if people are trying to learn how to invest in real estate, this stuff is not something they're used to seeing. So you, you got to spend a lot of time to make sure they understand it. Cause I want an educated investor. If you're not educated. First of all, by SEC regulations, I can't let you in the deal. But even if I could, I don't want you in the deal because you don't oh, know yeah. what you're, doing. you're going to be reckless for yourself because you don't know what you're doing. But then, secondly, you're going to ask me questions
1: I just don't have time to educate you on. Yep, and that uh, where you're speaking on August fifth in Houston is that virtual or is that in person? That's in person. Oh, okay. Darn
0: it. <laughs> My wife <laughs> ain't crazy about it. I might have to sit in another bedroom for two weeks while I self-quarantine, but yeah, That's it'll funny. be, so yeah, we're finally starting to get out a little bit ourselves and yeah, I'm so glad to be back touching, you know, not touching, but you know, seeing people face-to-face. This virtual right. thing works, but dude, I want to see people.
1: That's why I was so excited. So we just got done with our brand new office. And last night was our first meetup since COVID and in the office. So I was just super excited. I was super happy to see people. They're walking in and I'm like, are you shaking hands? Or are we fist pounding? You know, or like, they're like, oh yeah, we're shaking hands. You know, it's just, it, yeah, that's I how we are
0: as people. Very respectful of what they want. If they want me in a mask, well shit, I'll wear a mask. If yep. you're not big on the mask, I won't wear the mask. We'll keep our six to 10 foot distance maybe. So yeah, I try to play to what they feel comfortable with. Just like yep. all my staffs, I have my own management companies. I just walked on site earlier today and welcomed a new employee. And I told him, look, when I come in here, if you want me to wear a mask, I will wear a mask. If you don't require me to wear a mask, because this is your building, guys, you work for me, but this is your place.
1: I love so that. I love that.
0: Trying to do what they feel most comfortable with.
1: That's great. Let let's touch on that because that's something I had here that I wanted to talk about. When did you feel it was a point that you need to incorporate in-house property management? In-house meaning your own entity for the most part of property management. Cause I know that's something you mentioned that you do from day one. But day one, wow.
0: On that first property, I have no experience. We're going back to that. I have no experience, no track record. And the bank knows that I have an experienced coach, but they also know I'm the one having to do it. Bruce, you right. have no experience. I am never going to give you money and let you manage it yourself. So you're going to have to hire a professional third party management company. Okay, great. So I did that. But the loan docs didn't say you have to have that person for three months or six months or nine months or for the entirety of the project. Just a separate entity, that. right? So after six months, I got my feet under me. I felt confident. I was, you know, pretty secure in what I was doing now. So I let them go and I took over management right then. And I chartered my own management company. So that was back in
1: 2012. Okay, and and how many people did you hire for your management company when you started? Was there a, a group one yeah. by one?
0: Okay that's a, thank you for asking that because people are confused here. I'm an entrepreneur, you know, an entrepreneur of a startup. You were every, I'm about to say a bad word. You were every fucking hat. And if you're not <laughs> ready true. to do that. Unless your daddy warbucks bucks and you can put away $500,000. It's true. It's
1: so true.
0: You're going to run it all. There's a guy I know that lives yep. in California. And he said at a public forum that I was speaking at and He wasn't coming after me. He wasn't, you know, but he had a different view. He said, Yeah, management company's fine and all, but you can't be profitable until unit 300 to 400 units, something like that. I was like, No, that's bullshit. I am profitable from day one because I don't hire anybody. I hire people for the property, but that doesn't come out of my management fee, that gets paid by the property. Yep. My management fee goes all in my pocket at the beginning because I am the, the asset manager. I am the uh, regional manager. I am HR. I'm the CFO. I'm the CEO. I do everything. Now, if you're a person that wants to start a fully built out company, totally fine, but yes, you're not going to break even for hundreds and hundreds of units where I'm going to make money day one. Cause I'm willing to put in the hard work to do it.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, with that management company you put in place, you were charging that management fee that was going in your pocket, but those employees that you had on, were they on like an hourly base? So they weren't taking up that two to 10% management fee. How did that look? How did that structure work for you?
0: Well, now again, they're completely different things. So you have a P&L, right? A profit and loss statement or an income statement. One of the entries in the expenses is going to be a management fee, but then there's also a line item for payroll. They are, one is not coming out of the other. So my management fee does not pay for the employees. The property pays for the employees. And then I get a fee on top of the payroll for my management company to oversee the employees for that property. So, yeah, uh, that first deal it was a 48 unit. We had a part-time manager and a part-time uh, maintenance guy. Uh, we currently have, we're not a huge company. We grow uh,
1: reasonably quickly. We don't. Within reason like, of what you need.
0: Right. So we don't go like a lot of syndicators. And again, there's nothing wrong with their approach. I don't choose to do it. Some syndicators will buy two, three, four, five deals a year. I buy one to two deals a year because that's how I think I can effectively control my growth and not get out in front of myself and not you know buy too much without the proper staff in place. So right now we have 940 units. We have about 30 employees across our corporate staff and our property staff. So Uh, you know, we run all of our, uh, our payroll, we run all of our, what am I trying to say, insurance through it, we have group insurance for our employees. So the management company owns all of the employees, Mm -hmm. and we place them into different assets. But the management company owns the employees. That's a weird word, owning people, but we they're all hired by the management company, not by the individual properties. That way I can move them around from property to property if I need to.
1: It's kind of like an economies of scale kind of thing, and yeah. if you have all your your properties in in, in a close radius, exactly. that's that's great. I mean, the amount of info you just gave us in forty five minutes, and we're we're almost done. We're not there yet. Is just phenomenal. Uh, two stories I want you to touch on real quick, and I I'm sure you, you're smiling because you already know what they are. I know what are both of them guaranteed. I I'm I'm gonna guess you know both. Uh, we lost a little bit of money. Um, don't know where it went. I'll, I'll give that hint, and then the other one is something found in the pool. So you, you take it away. Take it away, Bruce. All right. So the first thing is, you know, I'm sitting in my office one day at the desk and
0: I'm, I'm actually preparing uh vendor. I mean, investor updates, right? So we send out a narrative every month and I'm going through that. And I get a text from the lead maintenance guy at one of my properties here in Austin. And I look at it, I open up the text and there's a picture and it kind of screwed my day up. Right? So this is a picture of a man in my pool, at that apartment complex, but he's not swimming. He's not frolicking. He's underwater lying on the bottom of the pool with his eyes open, staring straight up in his underwear. The dude oh is my dead. Goodness. I'm like, oh my God, tell your property manager and tell me, I have to know these things, but dude, do not send me that picture at eight o'clock. In the morning. So yeah, he uh we have cameras all over the place and we saw him on camera jump the fence that was locked at the pool at four o'clock in the morning, stumbling around. He could barely stand up, he was so drunk. He stripped down to his underwear, jumped in the pool, and never came back out. So that you know that that's a gut punch. That's tough to deal with. Because I have a management company, so I had to deal with it. Now, most people that do what I do, they third party. They use an outside management company, so they would never, they would hear about it from their management company, but they wouldn't have to deal with it. So I had to deal with it, make sure my staff was okay, make sure the residents that still live there, whose roommate just died, I got to, you know, I want to reach out to them, make sure they're feeling okay. You know, does anybody need counseling? My staff, you know, I'll do anything I can do to help the residents too. So yeah, that's something we had to deal with. Not fun.
1: Wow. Any anything at a liability standpoint that you had to deal with on that or not, not too well, much. Cause it was all
0: the police. That's the first thing. And then the second yep. phone call is always to the insurance company just let them know what's going on. Right. Uh, yeah. We were, we were not at fault. And uh, we did nothing. There's nothing we could have done to, to prevent it. Pool was locked. Like you said, right. exactly. So we did everything that we could have done reasonably. And you know, the people, cause we were human with them. We felt for them. We reached out to them. We tried to comfort them. They didn't come after us trying to say, oh, it's because uh, your fence wasn't high enough and it, it it wasn't covered in grease, so he couldn't climb up. You know, none of that <laughs> stuff happened. So, no, there was no liability. But to me, it's not about liability. It's uh, what can we do to make sure this never happens again? There's really not anything I can do. I can't control right. climbing the fence.
1: Especially intoxicated people. I mean, there's nothing you can exactly. do there. Yeah. Um, story number two, hit it. All right, so story number <laughs> two. This is part of the book that I say... All right. You want to be a syndicator? Great.
0: It's fantastic. It's rewarding. It's profitable. But let me tell you a story. You really got the nutsack to deal with this. Let's talk about it. So the day that we're closing, we go to the bank and I execute my wire for $5.2 million. I leave the bank. It usually takes about a, I've done a lot of these, right? I know it's an hour to an hour and a half. And then the, the seller will be in receipt of this wire. Once mm-hmm. that happens, I, it's official. I now own the property. So we initiate the wire at 9, 9.15 in the morning. We leave there. We drive to the property, which is an hour and a half away. We get there. They still haven't received the money. No problem. It'll come in any day, any second now. Well, an hour goes by. Bruce, we still haven't seen it. Okay, well, let me know if you don't see it in a little while. Another hour goes by. Bruce, we still don't know where this money is. I'm like, what? So I called the bank and I said, hey, dude, I, I've got the confirmation here. Can you look at it again, though? I said, nope, it's gone. It has left our bank. We do not have it. I'm like, okay. Uh, A mere
1: 5.2 million of other people's exactly. money.
0: Exactly. Seller? Uh, have you seen it yet? No. Nope. Nobody knows where it is. It's gone. And I keep hearing these things in my brain that people have told me over the years. I'm freaked out that somebody has intercepted our wire <sighs> and has confiscated our money and has just ridden off of, uh, into the sunset with all this money. So the end of the day comes, we still don't have the wire accounted for. So we have to leave the property because we finally did go to the property, Well, we have to leave the property. I have to now go back to the office and type up an email that says, Hey, today was closed day. Yay. Well, guess what? I'm sorry. We didn't get closed. So that's a bummer. I I'm sorry, but I, I've got some more weird news. I don't know where your money is. And you know, I put in, me and my wife put in a hundred thousand dollars 5.1 million of that is somebody else's money. It is not mine, and I can't tell them where it is. So, as a syndicator, do you really have the intestinal fortitude and the 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 courage to say, "I don't know where it is. I'm, right. I'm working on it, but I don't know where it is." We Stepping finally- up to the plate. Yeah, we found it, um, that, that happened on a Friday, we found it Monday, but I gotta go, you know, for a while not knowing where the hell this thing is. Worst
1: weekend of your life.
0: Drinking copious amounts of alcohol, trying to not have my CPA wife hyperventilate on me. Um, but yeah, we figured it out, it all worked out, we own it to this day. But yeah, dude, that stuff is gonna happen. And you hear rainbows and lollipops and unicorns on stages for people that are trying to sell you their program. You only hear the good stuff. You only hear, all right. the, people tell me all the time, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for telling me the truth. Cause I knew it was too good to be true. No, it's not too good to be true. They're just not telling you all the trials and tribulations you're going to encounter while it's all becoming true. So it's real, but it, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you just don't know.
1: You're right. So where'd that money get intercepted? You didn't tell us
0: so what happened so OFAC OFAC is a division of the treasury department i believe and their responsibility in the government is to watch wire uh, wire transfers they're trying to combat money laundering to support drug cartels and terrorist organizations that's the reason they exist so what they did is they come in and they see the wire come into the federal reserve it sits there the fed says everything looks okay you know, documentation wise. Well, now OPAC is going to come in and say, okay, who's the sender? Who's the receiver? Let's compare those names to a list of known bad actors internationally. Well, when they ran the name of the apartment complex, it hit. It was the name of a known drug cartel in Colombia. So they immediately go, oh, is this drug laundering, money laundering? What is this? So they grabbed the money and there is no customer service department in the U.S. government. They don't go, "Hey, Mister Peterson, we have your money. This is why we have your money. These are the steps we're going to take to make sure you're legit." They just take it.
1: Yeah, they don't tell anyone. Two
0: weeks with in which they can that they need to conduct their investigation. So they could have sat on it for two weeks. Luckily, we figured it out within you know the next business day, and everything was okay. But uh, yeah, that's where it went, and we finally got it back. So it all worked out.
1: That's awesome. I love it. Okay. Well, we are going to switch over to our last segment of the show. It's called The Curious Cues. I'm going to throw some questions at you and I want to get your answers on them. Okay. First question is your favorite podcast you like listening to? You know, it's not even real estate. It used to be
0: all the real estate stuff, Jake and Gino, bigger pockets, all that stuff. But now, honestly, I found one called um, Build Your Network with Travis Chappell. It's It's my favorite podcast easily right now. You know, he talks to people across every kind of different, you know, business discipline. And the the theme of it is, you know, you are, um, your success is directly tied to your network. And he talks about building your network. So that's my favorite one right now. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Favorite book you enjoy reading? Well, right now I'm reading Dare Greatly uh, by Brene Brown. Really, really good. Uh, She's a a therapist, uh, a psychologist maybe. Um, but learning a lot about vulnerability, uh, empathy, and that stuff. One of the best books that – there's there's the foundational books. Everybody's read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, so yep. I try not to say that much anymore. Thank you um, for not being
1: cliche. Exactly. So
0: <laughs> some of them th- that I really liked, I, I read uh, Grant Cardone's uh, Seller Be Sold. Mm. I'm not a big fan of his personality. I've got a big personality. I'm a bold personality, but he's a little much for me but I realized he's a brilliant mind. So I'll, I'll listen to him. I've gone to his 10 X conference, two different years, um, have a ball there. And I thought, I don't want to read this. I, I don't like the sales guy persona. So, but I thought, you know what? I, I need the next book. So I read that seller be sold is great. I've made all of my uh, property managers read it. So that's a fantastic book.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome.
0: Honestly, you know, I do well, these one-on-one interviews like this. I I do great on a stage. I could talk to 10,000 people and it lights me on fire in a good way. But when it comes to networking in a room where I don't know anybody, like at a meetup, if it's not my meetup and I got to walk the room, kiss babies and shake hands. Oh my God, I cannot (laughs) do it. I really can't. I freeze up. I've never had a panic attack, but it's the closest I can imagine to being a panic attack. I will immediately look for the exit and very often I will run out the door basically because I'm just so uncomfortable in that situation. I can't make small talk very well. Um, So I identified an issue I was having knowing I have got to network if I'm going to be a syndicator. So what I did, I started a meetup. Now they're going to come seek me out. I don't have to go make cold conversations with people. But then secondly, my wife is a social butterfly, right? I could be in the front of the room. She hates being in the front of the room. She can work a room. I can't work a room. So what I do is I follow her around the room, right? She breaks the ice with people and I just come along for the ride. And that's been the hardest thing for me is trying to figure out how to get over that. But I found a couple of good workarounds that really served as well.
1: Right. Great. That's good. Favorite non-real estate related hobby. What are you doing in all that free time you have? I know you have.
0: (laughs) Fantasy sports, dude. It's it's really boring for most people. It's a dorky thing. You know, I'm not a Trekkie, you know, but I am a fantasy (laughs) fantasy football guy. That's my thing.
1: Okay. Newbie advice. Advice you give to someone who's looking to get started in the syndication realm or they're already started and they're looking to scale a little bit more.
0: So probably the biggest thing, is understand who you are, be self-aware. If, you know, you read the book or you read somebody else's book on syndications or whatever and you think, oh, I'm gonna do that because I can make a lot of money. You can, it's very profitable, it's very lucrative, but understand that you might not be the personality type for this. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, invest possibly with other people. There's no problem with that, but just be self-aware. Know that I, I, I can't stand up to people Pro- professionally and respectfully, but I can't stand up to people if I need to, I'm going to get walked all over or no, I, I had one guy say, Hey, I listened to your talk. I loved it. I'm going to be a syndicator like you. Hey, fantastic. He goes, there is one issue. Okay. Well, what's that? I'm a dick. I'm like, <laughs> thanks for being self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> self-aware enough to know this is not going to work for you. You've got to find something else to do. So, you know, go down this path, start down this route, but just be aware of what you're doing. Be self-aware and know, you know, that these are the struggles I may have because of my personality, or maybe just don't even try to do it at all. Cause you could lose a lot of money doing this if you do it wrong.
1: Yep. You can. Last question. Where do you see yourself in 10 years?
0: Alive and breathing. That's the only thing I can say for sure. But my, I ask people all the time, what are your big audacious goals that people think you're an idiot for even contemplating? And I always get, I want 13 doors. That's not a big audacious goal. Give me something no, that's going to make I want 1,300 money. doors. No, no, no. Not even that. For me, it's, I want to own a double A AA or a triple A baseball team and I want to own a jet. That's it. That, so In 10 years, I hope to have been able to turn over a lot of this stuff to a CEO that I can oversee as up as the the president of the board, the chairman of the board. But have a CEO that I can instill my culture into that CEO, have them run it for us, me and my wife, and then we're free to just travel the country in my own jet, speaking, (laughs) helping other people because I love your team. I love to teach. That's what that's why I'm a coach. I don't do it because I need the money. We do well. But I just love giving back because other people gave to me and helped me come up and teach me the ropes. So that's what I want to do big picture.
1: That's great. Awesome. Well, Bruce, this has been phenomenal. I'm so glad we finally got you on the show. I'm glad you sent me your book. I'm glad I read it. I hope more more people do. Bruce, where can people connect with you, learn more about you, talk to you, or anything in your realm?
0: So the biggest thing is apartmentguy.com, which would be apt-guy.com. Um, the landing page right now is set to the book. So you can get kind of an inside look as as to what the book is all about. Decide whether you want to buy it or not. You can link straight to Amazon from that web page. Um, that's a good way to get in contact with me directly if you want to schedule some time on my Calendly. And let, let's have a 30-minute conversation. You know, you want to invest, you want to maybe look at coaching, or you just want to have a conversation. This is what I'm thinking. You think this is a good idea? Set an appointment with me, dude. I don't mind taking time with people. So the website is best for all that. And then I try to be active on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram. I'm not the best on social. I try, but that's where I spend most of my social time.
1: Awesome. Well, again, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we'll be talking soon. All right, buddy. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.